0: The show where journalists talk journalism. My name's Marcus Costello, and this week we're doing things a bit differently. I caught up with Associate Professor Faye Anderson, lecturer in the School of Media, Film and Journalism at Monash University, and co author of Shooting the Picture Press Photography in Australia. Faye and her colleague Sally Young interviewed 60 past and present press photographers to write a history of Australian press photography. The book charts political leaders and campaigns, crime, war, celebrity, censorship and more and maps the technological and commercial evolution in the industry. I started by asking Faye, what was it like in the very early days, in the late 1800s when photography made its way from science to art to newspapers?
1: The first photographs were to illustrate and they were never there to illustrate the news in the early years. They were simply there you know it was a separate picture and they were illustrated magazines they weren't even the newspapers really the first newspaper f- photograph was published in 1908 and then from the 1920s with the pictorial newspapers so this the sun pictorial newspaper in melbourne the daily telegraph here they started to publish photographs and th- And the tabloids used them in a in a far more strategic way, even in those years they 'd figured out the power of a photograph very early on. The broadsheets thought they were photographs for tabloid, so they didn 't actually use them very effectively until the
0: 1950s so you 're saying the broadsheets kind of looked down their nose yeah,
1: they did they thought it was sort of a tabloid they didn 't think it would it would revolutionary, revolutionize the industry. They didn't really see the evidential power of a photograph. So it was a very long trajectory. Um, We just think of, we think of newspapers, or if we think about newspapers at all, and that's a whole different story, as, you know, the illustration is so important. But they were there actually as decoration rather than anything else. So when I write about the Titanic, which is in 1912, and it sunk, you know, you would think that was front page, huge news. But really, newspapers still had advertising for the first eight pages, so they didn't even have a front front page. So a photograph of the Titanic was embedded in page eight, I think, um, and it took about two days for them, you know, to have the photograph on file. So,
0: so when editors came around to using photos in the newspaper, how did that change the way that copy was written?
1: Well, again, that's a very slow trajectory. So we expect it it doesn't happen instantly. Um, so they often don't have the story next to a picture. Sometimes they did. So the Daily Telegraph, um, when they covered the Claude Tozer um, criminal trial in 1921, which is a very, I write about it and we have the photograph, it's a very, very violent crime scene of Claude Tozer who was a, cricket player um, and a World War One hero, as he was pitched, who'd had an affair with his, one of his um, patients, he was a medical practitioner, and she'd shot him three times and they published the photograph of him dead on a sofa with the bullet wounds, which surprised me and I still think it's probably the most violent domestic photograph that we have or one of them. Um, And they did illustrate it. The Daily Telegraph, I think that they were trying to figure out the boundaries of violent photograph. How do you use a violent photograph? Um, So they did put it in the story, but usually you can see a photograph that is not actually part of the story. And look, until the 1980s even, the photographers we interviewed and we interviewed 60 of them, some of them still railed that journalists thought of them simply as illustrators to the story rather than it was picture-driven, it was always um, print-driven. And there was still that sort of conflict about that power and the individual singular power of the photograph leading the story rather than the other way around.
0: That's interesting that you say that that photograph taken over a 100 years ago to this day might just be the most violent image to have made it into print.
1: Domestic
0: how did they negotiate what was acceptable for public consumption?
1: The final arbiter, the final sort of person who makes any decision is the editor. Under the editor is the picture editor who takes the photographs that the photographers have given them and then and then I mean now it's filed, so it's a very different process. The photographer actually, his agency and she her agency, is taking the image you know the decision whether they take that image and honestly for most photographers um, the ethical ones and the unethical ones it's a moment you know you often have people saying how could they take that photograph but really they are there to take the picture as they would say it so it depends on the editor what photographs they really want to put in and it's sometimes change there seems to have been rules when we wrote this book so for an Australian soldier we have never had a dead Australian soldier published in a newspaper at that at the time that they were killed it's just off limits you just won't see it you can see a dead American you can see the dead other the dead enemy certainly but you can't see um an Australian for crime it's a little bit different and it really does depend on the editor um and we had a couple, There's a, there was a case of two men that killed two police officers and Michael Goenda was the editor of The Age and Jason South took the photograph and it's a very distant photograph of um, one of the victims with a sheet over but you can see the blood and it was a, a colour photograph and they decided that it was responsible to publish that photograph and I'm inclined to agree with them because it shows what police do in the field. It did. There was a huge backlash um, and it went to the press council. The police complained and it went to the press council. So the press council now, and I think since the 1980s, I could be wrong about the date, they decide, you know, they make a judgment about whether they think it's responsible or not. And it's often decided on public interest. That's the expression they use all the time, which of course is fairly nebulous. You know, your idea of public interest and my idea of public interest could be very different, but that's what it's down to. Um, So if it's public public interest, they'll say, yeah, we can publish it.
0: One thing that really struck me was the evolution of, quote unquote, setting up a photo. Can you talk me through what that process is and how it's changed over time?
1: Right. So it was was a highly valued skill that you would stage a photograph. So early on and even now, you know, even a photo op, is a staged photograph, if you think about it. You're not necessarily moving things, but it's a setup in a way. So it was a highly valued um, sort of skill. And there's a number of things to differentiate. You've got staging where you're asking someone to stand there, what they, what photographers and journalists will call a grip and grin, where someone shaking a hand and grinning. You know, they have all sorts of lexicons and expressions – but then you've got manipulation. That's a different issue altogether. But for staging, some of those older photographs, if you know, if you put a teddy bear, for example, in a cyclone, a war zone, it's an old trope. It's a it's a terrible cliche. They did it all the time. Um, they move people. They move cars. It was a highly valued skill. And you know, the, the photographers would talk about great, great great photographers because they had that imagination, that they had that eye. Now, of course, the younger photographers are very critical of that. Um, now, as I said, it's very different from manipulation, but they're really critical and they think it looks a bit old-fashioned um, and they wouldn't necessarily do it. That said, one of the photographers said that he'd noticed a photographer moving a book near Bill Shorten as he was leaving um one of the election campaign places and i can't remember what what the book was called but it was it was one of those gotcha moments you know having a having a politician under reject the sign reject is something you know all photographers were looking at that's not staging but now of course you have all these assistants and advisors saying you know they go out there to scout but there's nothing going to be embarrassing for their politicians
0: we had an interesting discussion on this show earlier in the year during the election campaign with BuzzFeed's political editor, Mark Stefano, yeah. talking about what it was like on the campaign trail. And he said that essentially the trail was set up for photographers and for videographers who need their grabs for the six o'clock news. Everything pivoted around those photogenic yeah. moments.
1: Yeah. The only thing is, of course, as long as it's not going to humiliate them and, um, I mean, if you go back to the 1960s with Kennedy, he had his own, he had his own photographer. He understood the, f- the power of a photographer. Um, Tony Abbott appointed his own photographer before he was ousted. Although there's more, you know, they want photographers to take photos. They also want to sanitize it and make sure that there aren't those gotcha moments, you know, with a sign that says out
0: or. That's really interesting that a politician would have their own photographer, As you say, you can sanitise it, you can control the message.
1: You know, football teams, so every football team has a photographer usually now. The Australian Defence Force has their own image archive with thousands and thousands of photographs that anyone can sort of um, download and newspapers do it all the time. With the diminution of newspapers, with three quarters of staff photographers gone, it's the cheapest and easiest way and it's a way of controlling the message and the newspapers take the images.
0: At this year's um, Republican National Convention, BuzzFeed launched BuzzBot. It's an automated chat bot for Facebook's Messenger app. Uh, the, the bot allowed basically anyone at the convention to send through their impressions via Facebook Messenger and then the bot responds in this sort of back and forth. Are you seeing that media outlets are starting to crowdsource photography in that way?
1: Well, they do it. They do it in a number of ways. They have journalists now that they've armed them with iPhones, so they are pretty boring photographs, I have to say. So as opposed to having a staff having a photographer. staff photographer, so yeah. they have so for the crime photographs, which I look at a lot, um, you know, you'll have a journo just just doing th- that blue and white tape, which is just saying I'm there. It says nothing about a story. There's no there's no skill to it. It's just having someone there. It's a very cheap way. Um, we didn't l- see that a lot of the newspapers still used citizen journalism and inverted commas. I mean, the question about that is ethics, you know, and, and why they're taking the photographs. How do you know, for example... That Trump's people aren't taking the most um, ludicrous photographs, and vice versa, if the Clinton machine are doing the same thing. So, and they don't subscribe to the MEA ethics in Australia if they're using citizen um, photographers. So there is a problem, but it's a very cheap option, and that's that's the reality of newspapers. The business model is just disintegrating. All the photographers are there on the spot. They're actually seeing what's going on. So, you know, they tell you things off the record and sometimes they don't know, but you know, they're very close to the police. The media are very close to the police, so they're actually often fed a lot of information. But yeah, the photographers actually have to go out in the field. And now they, you know, once upon a time they used to go with the journalists, so they'd have someone with them. Not that they needed help, you know, they they drove a lot of those pictures, but It makes them far more vulnerable. They're much closer to danger. They're much closer to very high volatile um, stories. They often have to deal with highly traumatized people or just malevolence. You know, people that are just horrible.
0: So, what was what was your favourite story? The most shocking, controversial, memorable story that and I can you tell have <laughs> from researching this book.
1: Yeah. So, um, in terms of those stories, there were so many. There were there were stories about people forgetting what they covered we had one photographer rick stevens who was is an amazing photographer he couldn't remember he'd done snowtown now he'd done so many assignments but he'd suppressed it it had been so horrific and he'd also done port arthur you have you we had one photographer clive mckinnon who talked about um, the revolutionary aspect of digital photography and he said he covered horse racing for 30 years and until he'd seen a digital photograph, he didn't realise horse, horses had eyelashes, um, which is just a beautiful way of expressing that that absolute vivid quality of, of the new cameras. Some of the photographers were more resistant to it. There were stories of sexual harassment for the women and the story of gender and gender politics was pretty um interesting and very and vital can you um, tell me more about that sure so women so when
0: did women become part of the industry
1: we interviewed pioneers and they came out they came in very late and you know we often say you know there weren't that many women there were women freelancers um adelaide hurley she worked freelance um
0: what, what years are these
1: well i think the first couple emerged during the second world war but they weren't accredited, and they weren't staff photographer. S- staff photographers. The first female, the first woman cadet journalist was Yvette Grady for um, the Australian newspaper in nineteen sixty five. Yep, it gets it gets sort of worse and better in a way. Laurie Graham was the first Fairfax in 1975, and Laurie is still an extraordinary freelance photographer. And she said to us, she was only appointed because it was the International Women's Year, and they felt Fairfax felt that they needed to appoint a woman. And I think the secretary um, suggested that. And why did it take so long? <sighs> it's a very blokey. Um, I would say sometimes misogynistic industry. They blamed the the weight of equipment, but it was a form of exclusion. As in the physical. Yeah, and it was, but honestly, the women could carry it. I think that was an excuse. Every single photographer I interviewed, and I interviewed 30 of them, all said it was blokey. That was the word they used. It was tough, it was blokey, it was. Really difficult for the women to navigate, and for those early pioneers, even when we interviewed some of the only a couple, they would still their feelings about women photographers were slightly betrayed. You know, they'd still. One of them said, "Oh, they didn't quite cut it," and you know. And then you'd have someone like Mike Bowers, um, who was um, the former editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, and he said he just he could never understand the attitude because. Every female photographer he worked with, he said they were all fantastic. And Mike um, chose Kate Geraghty as the first female Fairfax photographer to cover um, a war in 2003. So we're talking about a woman and Kate's done momentous work and is probably our most seasoned conflict um, photographer, 2003. The first Walkley winner who was a female um, was Verity Chambers and that was in 1992. So it's, yeah, it was a, for the women, it was a very difficult, um, career to navigate.
0: So in the past few years, we've seen some pretty incredible composite photography that is photoshopped, manipulated sure. images on the front pages of the biggest tabloids. So does the old saying, the camera never lies, still have currency?
1: The camera's always lied. Um, <laughs> And it's it's about us as 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 viewers. We're very subjective. We read what we want to read in a photo photograph. Again, look. The media has a very short institutional memory. Um, the military has a very long one, but the media have, tend to have a very short one. Frank Hurley, who I mentioned before, he did composite photographs in World War One. He used twelve images over each other to, and they're beautiful photographs. But he believed photography was art, not historical evidence so it also depends on their imperative it's much easier now it's also for some news organizations instant dismissal um ap instantly dismissed a photographer that it that had um manipulated an image you know putting smoke in um all sorts of all sorts of reasons but my feeling is of course photographs lie Um, they're sometimes our closest things to evidence, and I think World War II and the con- liberation of the concentration camps and those extraordinary photos that came out that were in really important, and Eisenhower said, take all the photographs that you need to because this is proof this is happening, and it was. Um, but in terms of those photographs that, we're, that we see that are manipulated... Um, whether it's Tony Abbott and the Daily Telegraph and the way the Daily Telegraph editorialises with photographs, they tend to say that it has been manipulated. But
0: I think that's only come in as a ruling very recently, hasn't it? That if there's been um, after-the-fact manipulation, um, it has to state underneath the image that this is a composite. Yeah, that's right.
1: Um, I mean, most photographers don't do it. And, and I have to say the ones we interviewed, um, they were really, resp- you know, they're usually very ethical and particularly the ones we they have been in the game for a very long time. That's why actually they don't like, a lot of them don't like citizen photography because they really don't know what the provenance is. They don't know what people have done with, it, with an image. Um, but. It, it, it can both lie, but saying that it's also an extraordinarily crucial idea about, you know, this is our evidence, this is proof, these things are happening. And in countries where, you know, photographers can't get in, like Syria, the photograph is very, very important because we are seeing suffering that we wouldn't see. Similarly, with the liberation of the concentration camps, the the most assiduous um, chronicles of of their criminal intent were the Nazis. They took photographs all the time. They just weren't picked up by the news agencies because um, for whatever reason they tended to either discount it or they were concentrating on other things. So the camera is very, very important.
0: Some of the biggest stories coming out of Syria in the last few years have been centred around photographs, especially of The couple of children that we've seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: But that said, Marcus, the important thing to remember about those photographs, look, there's been a couple. There were um, the photographs from Syria. There was that amazing photograph um, of the woman um, in America where the Black Lives Matter, where she's standing in front of a a group of guards.
0: In Baton Rouge. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, That said, all those photographs are ironically or not ironically taken by um, professional photographers so because you know they can take a beautiful shot they can they've, they're creative they know how to take a photograph how to take a great photograph I mean the citizen photographers they come into their own particularly the London bombings for example um, a lot of those images came from people on the ground um, so you know it's not one or the other I think I think what is really opportune is that we actually have all sorts of diverse sources and I think that's important. But um, the crucial issue is not to actually just get rid of the professional photographers, which a lot of the news organisations are slowly doing.
0: With so much changing, with so much evolution, what has stayed the same about press photography? Has anything stayed stayed constant? That's a good question.
1: Look, I think a, a... extraordinary image that grabs our attention that captures our collective memory I think that's unchanged I think why photographs capture our attention are different that said we have so many ish- images so in 2014 1.8 billion images were downloaded um, in that year so we have so many images whether we remember them the way we used to, that goes to the change as well. But I think the power of a photograph, the beauty of a photograph, the skill of a photographer, I don't think that will ever go. Um, in terms of the history of newspaper photographers, staff photographers, that's, you know, that's a moving um, feast and it's not necessarily going to end well I don't think it depends you know we spoke to as I said a lot of the photographers um and many of them lamented what was happening others some were a little bit optimistic because they believe that you know um it will always survive it will always survive photojournalism will but you know we can't predict and we started this project three years ago and I don't think I realized you know, that we were walking into people's lives at, you know, often their most vulnerable. You know, we have we started with 60 and 10 took um, voluntary redundancies or had been let go over that period. So, you know, you'd walk into people's lives and we had one after we turned off the machine, the um, audio machine, she asked us if she, if we knew what was going on in terms of her news organisation and then six months later... She wasn't working for the newspaper, so it's changed so dramatically, and it it always has. And look, we've critics have always lamented what they are there. They imagine is the demise of photojournalism. They did it in the nineteen seventies when Life Magazine ceased to be a weekly newspaper um, magazine. So it's that thing about oh, it's gone, and of course it hadn't gone. Um, it's just different. It's a different being. But I think that power. I think. You know, we all get drawn to, to photographs for different reasons. Um, but sometimes they can capture a moment. Sometimes they can at, capture an era. You know, if you go look at the Vietnam photographs, if you look at World War Two photographs, um, you know, there are reasons why they've lasted.
0: Faye Anderson, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you. That was Faye Anderson, co-author of Shooting the Picture, Press Photography in Australia, published by Melbourne University Press and available in stores and online. That's it for 4th Estate this week, but we're on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, so you can listen to this episode and every other episode of 4th Estate anytime, anywhere.